Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I am the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. You know what hoarding is? So a 2013 study of hoarding said that 1.5% of, uh, of the world suffers from hoarding. And so in the United States, that would make it about 4.5 million Americans are plagued with this, they, they call it a mental illness, hoarding, where, and if you don't know what hoarding is, it's when you just keep collecting things, you can't stop collecting them, and you just collect things, not things, not like mangers, Beverly's not here, but she collects mangers, but she's not hoarding them, okay, so if she listens to this. So hoarding is just when you collect paper, you can collect trash. You just can't. You can't throw it away. And lots of times, hoarders their their lives are wrecked. Their homes are wrecked because of their their hoarding. They're embarrassed to let anybody else into the house because of the way it looks. And uh, so they keep people out. A 2001 study showed that people who are affected with hoarding, the age of 60, by the age of, uh, people over the age of 60, I'm, I'm sorry, 45% of them cannot use their refrigerator because it's either buried, broken, or it's filled with non-food items. Uh, 42% of people over 60 who are affected by hoarding cannot use their bathtubs. 10% cannot even reach their toilets. And hoarders, and hoarders fill up, uh, thank you, Peter. Okay. And hoarders actually fill up any space that they have. So if they have uh, a little space, like a little suite or something, they'll fill that up. But if they, um, if they have a mansion, they'll fill, they'll fill that up. So uh, they'll fill up everything that they have. Am I, am I working with this now? Okay. So they'll fill up anything they have. What you may not know is that cleaning up a hoarder's home is, is very, very difficult. In fact, it's very dangerous. People, when they go in to clean hoarder's homes, uh, oftentimes because there are animal feces and rotting food and all kinds of biochemical problems, that they'll put on hazmat suits to go and, uh, and, and clean houses. I have a couple pictures of before and afters, you know, where people have, have cleaned up those, uh, those homes. I tell you that because this morning Jesus is going to do a little house cleaning of his own. And I I won't say that he's going to clean up a hoarder's mess, but he is going to clean out stuff that's been brought in to where it ought not be, and he's going to remove it. So if you happen this morning to be, uh, we can get off those pictures. So if, uh, if you are here this morning and you happen to be a first-time guest, we're studying through the Gospel of John, and uh, we're looking at John's story of the life of Jesus, and uh, we've seen how Jesus uh, was before Bethlehem, before he was born, uh, we're celebrating his birth, but before he was even born, he existed, we saw that, and now we've seen him take center stage uh, of ministry, and he's going to do so for the next three years, even, even replacing John the baptizer. And then we saw how Jesus begins to assimilate to himself some of his disciples, and we saw the first five disciples, you know, begin to follow him, actually leave John behind. And then last week, we saw Jesus attend a wedding in the town of Cana, which is just a few miles outside of his, the own, his own village where he grew up, the town of Nazareth. 
And so we pick up our story in chapter 2, verse 12. So if you have a Bible, please turn there. If you don't have a Bible, you may be uh, not wanting to do this, but you're always welcome to go in the back. At our welcome table, there's a Bible there. Please grab one next week if you don't have one. And if you want to go get it this week, please do. But there's some Bibles on the uh, welcome table. They are for you, and they are free for you to take. Verse 12. After this, he, that is Jesus, went down to Capernaum, and he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So after this wedding, they went to Capernaum. Now, it doesn't tell us why they went from Cana to Capernaum, but we do know that Capernaum would become a a major hub of activity for Jesus. I think this is my speculation, but it's most likely where Peter and Andrew and James and John had their fishing boats. And so I, I think that's why it became the hub. We know from history, from the Bible, that Peter was married, had a family, so most likely his family stayed in Capernaum. So that kind of became the hub, I think, uh, for Jesus and his ministry there uh, in Galilee in particular. Now, you will notice that it says that Jesus went with his brothers. Now, that word there in the Greek is, is actually a plural word. It would be more like siblings. So we don't, it, it could mean brothers, or it could mean brothers and sisters. We, we know that Jesus had at least two brothers, James and Jude, because they wrote for us in the New Testament. Two of their books are recorded for us in your New Testament. Um, Um, So we know he had brothers, at least he he most likely had some sisters as well, though they're not recorded for us. Some people would like to tell you that Jesus didn't have any siblings at all, that Joseph and Mary never had sexual relationships after after Jesus was born. I think that's simply patently not true, okay? Jesus had siblings, and he was the oldest of them. From Capernaum, Jesus travels to Jerusalem for the Passover, a trip that most likely he makes every year of his life since he was a child. You remember? when he's 12, he actually gets lost by staying behind on this trip. But he's heading to, to Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover. If you're not all that familiar with your, with your Bible or, or biblical history, the Passover was a celebration of God freeing the Jews from Egypt. They had been held in captivity by Egypt for 400 years. God releases them. And after that, the Jews every year would celebrate Passover, remembering that God had freed them from Egypt. So that's what this celebration is. We pick up the story in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers seated at the table. And he made a scourge of cards, and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, before I actually get into the text and we look at the text, let me do a little bit of comparative context for us from the other Gospels. As you know, if you're here regularly, there are four 
books about the life of Jesus. Three of them are very, very similar. They give us a synopsis of Jesus' life. John's gospel is very different. And what you may or may not know is that the first five chapters of the gospel of John, which we are studying now, are not found in the other gospels. So the other gospels have material that John does not include. So as they begin, they talk about Jesus' baptism, and then they talk about his temptation in the wilderness, and the very next thing in the synoptic gospels is Jesus calling James and John and Andrew and Peter by the Sea of Galilee and saying, leave your nets and come and follow me. That's where they pick up. John's material that we're studying now is, is in between those two points, all right, you following what I'm saying? So what you're studying now is this point, this material that's left out of those other gospels. And so John, who is writing very late in history, this is probably, if not the oldest book, one of the oldest books in your New Testament. You say, wait, it's number four. It's number four in its location in your New Testament, but it's one of the oldest books written. And so when John is writing, he's writing later, he's writing on purpose, he's writing because he wants to convey a certain message. And it's obvious to me, anyway, that he is recording for us material that's not recorded by the other writers. And, and so if, if, if this was, if, if the other synoptics were all we had, you might think, and I did, I think, for years, that when Jesus called James and John and Peter and Andrew by the water, you remember he's walking by there and he, cast them, he tells them to cast their nets out on the other side, or he says, come and follow me. You might think that that's the very first time they are meeting him, but it's not. We know from John's gospel that they have not only met him, but they have been with him. They, they were with him at the wedding at Cana. They may have been with him in the text that we're looking at today, although it doesn't say. It doesn't necessarily say that Peter and James and, or, or John and Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel, they actually have traveled from Capernaum down to Jerusalem. It doesn't say. I, I'm, I'm speculating they probably were there, but it doesn't say. So they may or not have been there. Everybody following me? So when we read in, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that Jesus comes up to them while they're fishing and says, leave your nets and come and follow me, but they're not doing that in a vacuum. They already know who he is. They already, they already believe they already believe, but now he's calling them in some special way to, uh, to, follow, to follow him. When they get to Jerusalem in verse 14, what Jesus discovers when he enters the temple is written for us this way. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their, their table. Now again, most of you know this, so forgive me if it's, just a, if it's just a refresher for you, but when you came to celebrate the Passover, you were responsible to sacrifice a sheep. So if you were coming from Thessalonica all the way over in Greece somewhere, you know, bringing a sheep that long distance would have been really, really hard. And so for your convenience, you know, where, 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 there's, a, where there's a need... You know, capitalism works even back then, right? And so people put together sheep and they were selling them to the travelers so they could then go and offer their sheep at the sacrifice of Passover. Now, you could bring your own sheep if you wanted, but, but this was so much more convenient and people did that. You also had to pay a temple tax that was made in temple coinage, but you didn't use temple coinage. And so when you came from Thessalonica to worship at the Passover and you had your Greek coinage, you, you, you couldn't use it in the temple. And so you had to change it. Much like when we go to some foreign country in the airport, there's a money exchange place. Well, they had the same thing, a place to exchange money. So you could change, exchange your Greek coinage for temple coinage. 
coinage so that you could pay your temple tax uh, at, the, at the Passover. And so they had these money changers. In days gone by, these men had actually set up across, across the Kidron Valley over on the Mount of Olives. D.A. Carson says, the animal merchants set their stalls across the Kidron Valley on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, but at this point, they were in the temple courts, doubtless in the court of the Gentiles, which is the outermost court. So so for whatever reason, these exchangers had moved from the Mount of Olives into the very temple itself. And we know the reason, right? It's convenience. It's convenience. And by the way, this is the court of the Gentiles, the dogs of the earth, the people that God doesn't really care about. So why not take the court of the Gentiles and, and, and do that? And do that with the court of the Gentiles, making it easier on us Jews to go in and worship during the Passover. History records for us another, another aspect of this that I want to mention, and that is that you, if you did happen to bring your own sheep, and you went to the temple to offer your sheep, the priest most likely would find a flaw in it. He would say, it doesn't look good, it's too sickly, it's too thin, this doesn't pass, you're going to need to go get another sheep. So then you would go out to the, uh, to the people that sold sheep, they'd buy your sheep from you for a fraction of what it's worth, and then sell you one that already the priest had pre-approved it was good, and then, and then they say that the priest received kickback from what was, man, nothing changes, does it? <laughs> nothing changes. Jesus walks into this marketplace and the ire of God, the anger of God erupts in his heart. You know, I, I, you know, I, I read a lot of commentators who spent a lot of time on the anger of God. I'm really not. He gets angry. And in verse 15, he made a scourge of cords and he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins and the money changers overturned their tables. Uh, those who were selling doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of business. So I think you get the picture. Here's all these oxen and sheep and everything that's to be, to be slaughtered in the sacrifice. And Jesus goes in with a whip and begins to drive the animals out. And there's some discussion. Does he whip the people that are in the market or just the animals? I, mean, I, don't, I don't have a clue. I, I'm imagining he's just whipping the animals and getting them all stirred up. But the pandemonium breaks out. I mean, we've all seen this portrayed in Easter specials, haven't we? Where Jesus walks in and he's flipping up the tables and the coinage is going flying everywhere and he's whipping the animals into a frenzy. So they're running, everybody's running. It says here, he kicked them out of, of the Gentile, court of the Gentiles uh, on this particular occasion. And, and indeed, angry merchants, I mean, you just can imagine what a mess that was when Jesus did that. I said you've noted this on Easter, on Easter presentation, so if you're paying attention, you may have asked yourself, well, wait a minute, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Why would we portray it in Easter presentations? That's because, remember those three synoptic gospels? They record Jesus cleansing the temple at the very end of his ministry, the very last Passover in which Jesus lives. And so that's led Bible historians and scholars to ask the question, did Jesus... Did he cleanse the temple at the end of his ministry? Did he do it at the beginning or did he do it both? And many, many suggest that John is just, you know, he doesn't care about chronology and he's putting the story of the cleansing of the temple here for, for whatever reason. I, I don't agree. This is just Jimmy. I mean, you can search the scriptures and you can decide. Uh, you, you need one thing, one thing, if I can just say this, this is, this is just sort of a tangential note, but, but you need to not, we need to not import our Western literalism into everything that's done in the Eastern world of Palestine 2000 years ago. It's very, very different. But 
But uh, I, I think these accounts are two different accounts. They're different. There's different, uh, there's different facts. They're, they're different enough that I think that John is trying to include something that happened in the beginning of ministry that the other guys left out that, that I think happened at the end of his ministry. I think they're bookends to Jesus' ministry. I think Jesus starts by the cleansing of the temple, and I think he's going to end with the cleansing of the temple. I think this is so important that Jesus does it on, on both ends. So if I am right, and John is not just taking a story and, and putting it in his gospel out of chronology, out of, out of order chronologically, if I am right that he is telling us what happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, then one thing, it, the one thing for us to note is that Jesus has a go right at the religious leadership of his day, he's going to go right at them from the very beginning. And you will remember, during the next three years, he holds no punches in what he says to everybody who's in leadership. He says he calls them whitewashed tombs. He calls them taking the law of God or the word of God and using it to rob people. I mean, he holds no punches back from them. And so this may be, you know, him going right at them and saying, you are profaning my father's house. You are profaning God's temple. That'd be years before the disciples truly understood what was happening that day. But at some point in the future, they would get it. That what Jesus did that day is what was told us in Psalm 69, verse 17. Psalm 69, verse 17 is a messianic song. It's a psalm. It is about this coming anointed king that's coming one day. And in that psalm, it says that zeal for God's house would consume him. And they, they put two and two together and they said, oh man, what Jesus did was because zeal for God's temple, zeal for God's house was consuming him. And that's, and that's what he, that's why he did what he did. And, um, they had polluted God's house. They had corrupted God's house. They, they had turned God's house into a common marketplace. And Jesus' ire was up. His anger was real. And he drove them out of the temple that day as he walked through there. Now, in verse 18, his deeds do not go unchallenged. So in verse 18, the Pharisees, uh, the leadership says, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So the Jews, the, that, that's the leadership, the religious leadership, they say, we want a miracle. We want to see that you have uh, the authority to do this. Now notice, isn't it interesting that they're not arguing with whether it was right or wrong to do this? I think everybody knew it, that what they were doing was wrong. So it wasn't the rightness or the wrongness of Jesus' actions. It was, what gave you the authority to do this? You know, show us a sign that says you have authority to cleanse the temple. And by the way, I think they recognized Jesus' authority in doing that. In other words, when he steps up, he's exercising authority. He is exercising authority by cleansing the temple. They just want to know by what right are you doing this. Show us a miracle that says you have a right to do this. And uh, now notice this. Jesus says, I'm going to give you one. I'm going to give you a sign. 
And uh, he says, I, I am going to destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Now, Jesus, in, in this point, listen, he is, he's not trying to persuade any Jew about what's coming. He's simply giving this prophetic word that he is going to die and he is going to triumph over death. He couches his, his sign like this, I will destroy this temple, but three days later, I'll raise it up. And that's the authority, that's the sign I'm giving you, that I have the right to do what I'm doing. Now, everyone thinks he's talking about the physical temple, and they begin to push back and argue, and they say, it's taken 47 years to build this temple. Now, just so you know, just historically so you'd, you'd understand this, this is not Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was destroyed by, let's see if you remember your prophets. Who destroyed Solomon's temple? Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon did, right. And then it was built again when? After the exile, right? 70 years later, and they didn't build it right at first, and God had to really kind of say, you live, in, you live in these wonderful houses, but my house is, house is just a foundation. And he had to, you know, guys, what, what are you doing? So, so they built a temple, and you remember some people were happy, and the older people that had seen the previous temple, what did they do? They cried. Why did they cry? Because it was nothing compared to the temple of Solomon. Well, Herod, when he became king, he decided to, to make the temple right. So for the last 47 years, Herod's family has been working on, on magna, making the temple as magnificent as it used to be. So when they say it's taken 47 years, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about the Herod family and their rebuilding of the temple. But the text tells us that Jesus isn't talking about that physical temple. He's speaking of himself as the temple of God. And he says that he's going to destroy it in death and he will raise it back to life in three days. So verse 21 tells us that he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered what he said, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Again, it would take years, listen to me, it would take years for the disciples to understand the significance of what was happening that day in the temple when Jesus was cleansing it, and it was really only after the resurrection that they got it, and even then, it took some time for it all to assimilate how all of this was working together. And if I'm right... And if I'm right, that there's two cleansings of the temple that didn't last, did it? Three years later, Jesus would drive them out again. I've actually wondered this. When Jesus left later on, did they come back into the temple? Next year, were they there, were they there in the outer court of the Gentiles doing their thing again, and, and Jesus doesn't cleanse the temple then? Or, or did they stay away for two years, and then on the third year, they, you know, the priest let them back in, and, and Jesus once more cleanses it? I, you know, I, I don't know, but the cleansing does not last, and, um, and they come back. So believe it or not, that's, that's the end of my treating of the text, okay? That's the end of my treating of the text. Did you know that the temple that Jesus cleanses that day is the temple that he will destroy in 70 AD? So just 40 years, not quite 40 years in the future, Jesus would destroy that same temple right there. In Hebrews 8, God says he rendered the first covenant obsolete and he caused it to pass away and he inaugurated a new covenant with his death and his resurrection. And, and he made a people according to Hosea and then according to Paul in Romans. He, he made a people that were not his people to be his people. And he began construction of a new temple in that very day. 
And that new temple wasn't going to be made with brick and mortar. The new temple that God was making in the new covenant was a living temple. And we are the living stones of the living temple that Jesus is building. And he is the chief cornerstone. And just as Jesus was Lord over that temple, he's Lord over his new temple. The Apostle Paul says there's one Lord, only one Lord, and it's Jesus. He was Lord over that brick-and-mortar temple where God put his presence in the Holy of Holies, and he is Lord over the living temple where God's spirit and God's presence still dwells within that new temple. And Jesus has a right to judge this temple just as much as he had a right to judge that temple. Would you agree? That just as he had a right to judge that temple, he has a right to, as Lord, to judge this new temple that he is constructing. So here's my, my question to, to end with this morning. And you know, I've got a few minutes to go, so don't get all excited. But this is, this is, this is my question to end this morning. Now listen carefully, because this is the rest of my talk. If Jesus walked into his temple today, if he walked into his temple, I mean, here's his temple. If he walked into his temple today and he walked among us, here's my question. What would he want to see? Not, not what would he find. When he walked into the temple that day, he didn't want to find what he found. He wanted to find something different. I'm asking you, if Jesus walked into his temple today and walked among us as he walked in that temple, what would he hope to find as he walked among us? So that became the question that all week I meditated on. And uh, Wednesday night, I, I awoke in the night several times, and, and, and each time I'd actually use this question to try to put myself back to sleep. But in the middle of the night, I felt like God gave me an answer. So I don't, I don't mean this to be mystical at all. I think my answer is going to be thoroughly biblical. But, but it was in the middle of Wednesday night that, that I knew what I wanted to say to you right now is what he would want to find if he walked among us today. If he walked into the temple today, here's what he'd want to find. He'd want to see that we love him with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, with, with everything within us. And, and I don't think he's dividing us into, into a four-part person. I think he's trying to say, if he walked among us today, what he'd hope to see in his temple would be living stones that love him with all of their being. And you know the story from which this comes, don't you? The Pharisee comes to Jesus and he says, hey, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, I can tell you. The greatest commandment of all is to love the Lord your God with all your, with all your strength, with all your might, with all your heart, with all your mind. It varies from, from gospel to gospel. But in other words, just love God with everything you are. And then he volunteers the second thing and he says, and the second's like the first one. It's to love others like you love yourself. And, and so if Jesus is walking among us today, Here's what he wants to see in his temple. He wants to see living stones that love him with all of their being. And he wants to see living stones that love other people. He, he's, he'd be looking and, and longing to see people who love each other, who care for one another, who, who are quick to forgive each other, 
who carry each other's burdens when, when they can't carry on on themselves, the others carry their burdens with them. That's, that's, what, that's what, as he walked among us, that would be what he'd want to see. And I mean, he, want, he wouldn't want us just to see us loving each other. He, he'd want to see us loving outsiders. He'd walk among us. He wouldn't want to see the court of the Gentiles filled with, with, with robbers and thieves stealing and, and turning the outer court of the Gentiles into a marketplace. He, he would want us loving people outside of ourselves. He, he'd want to see us you know, not neglecting the poor, caring for the poor, not denying justice, not abandoning the hurting, but, but just caring for people outside so that people know we genuinely care for them. You know, Luke Richard this week on his social media, some of you responded to it so you saw it, but, but Luke wrote a great piece and he was talking about how, you know, my responsibility as a believer to fo- in following Jesus is that I love people and accept people like Jesus did. That's exactly what he did. Luke went on to say, that doesn't mean that I deny truth. I don't deny truth. I, I speak truth clearly, but I, I love people and people know it. Now, not everybody's gonna accept that, as Luke found out, but, but you know what? That's what we need to do. And if Jesus walked among us this morning in his temple, that's what he'd be looking for. Now, have you ever heard this thing about the, the 35,000 foot view? Put the next picture up there for me, would you please? This is the 35,000 foot view of our church. Do you see it? You've got pretty good eyesight if you see our church in that. I don't know if it's 35,000 feet, but you get the point, right? So we zoom in a little bit. And again, I don't know if this is 25,000, but I start to see a little things that I recognize. Go on down. Go on down till you get to the very last one. Ah, you see my motorcycle parked in its normal pot, right, spot right there? You couldn't see that at the 35,000 foot view. And, and that's not Beverly, that's just a drainage ditch. <laughs> but I thought I might could fool you nonetheless, right? Because uh, we're still not quite low enough. Here, here's why I included that. Because when I tell you that Jesus walks among us and he wants to see us loving God with all of our heart, with all of our being, and he wants us to see us loving one another, that's the 35,000 foot view, is it not? I mean, we could drill down on that, and, and what does that look like practically? What does that look like? What does that look like when I put my feet to it and I live it out, right? So I'd, I'd like to drill down just a few minutes on those two things. And, and again, I, I could, there's, there's a myriad of things. This is the part where my message today, I'm so uncomfortable with it because it's not coming from the text. This is coming from my heart. And, and I don't know if I can speak for God, but as I drill down, as I drill down on those two things, I, I want to share with you, I want to share with you a, a little bit closer view of what it means to love, what God would look for when he's looking looking to see whether Jimmy loves him with all of his heart and see whether Jimmy loves people. This is what I think he'd be looking for. So as he walks among us, here's what I think he'd look to see. He'd look to see if we have, I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk about loving him first. I'm going to talk about loving others. Loving him. I think he would look to see faith. 
As he walks among us, he would be looking at these living stones and he would be looking to see that we exercise faith. But you say, wait a minute, Jimmy, faith, that's kind of like, I mean, that's like a 25,000 view. That might be a little bit better, but it's not much better than the 35,000 views. So let me define faith for you so that you would, you know, so it gets a little bit, little bit closer to, to what I I'm, what I'm, want you to see. And, and that is that in, in Hebrews chapter 11, God defines faith for us. He says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So do you get that? Without faith, you can't please God. What is faith? He goes on to say, the one who comes to him must believe that he is, that he exists. So faith is this confidence, this believing that the creator exists. But then, and that's all he says, only to add to it, and he, so the one who comes to him must believe that he is, and that he, God, is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's how the author of Hebrews defines faith for us. Believing that God exists, and being someone who diligently seeks God. So if, if, God, if God is gonna walk among us like this, and he's gonna be looking at all of us, Here's what he's going to be looking for. He's going to be looking, are you a person of faith? Let me, again, let me draw it down for you. That means, are you a person who believes that God exists, but also, are you a person that diligently seeks God? That's how God's defining faith. Do you diligently seek God? And I don't want you to answer it publicly. I do want you to answer it in your heart. Do you diligently seek God? Because that's the person who has faith. That's the person whom God rewards. So do you diligently seek God? You say, well, Jimmy, I don't know how to seek God. Let me, let me drill down. Can I drill down so you can see my motorcycle? Can I drill down a little bit more? See, here's how you seek God. You see God by, by how he's revealed himself through his word. You see, the scripture says all scripture is given to us by inspiration of God so that we might, and I'm gonna paraphrase, so that we might know God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So as Jesus walks amongst his temple today and he's looking, he's looking to see, do you and I diligently seek him? Do you and I diligently seek to know him through his word? That's what he's gonna be looking for as he walks among us. And I tell you, I've struggled with telling you all that. You know why? Because there's a house church in China that they ripped the, this, is, this has been 10 years ago, so it's, it's probably no different. There's a house church in China where they rip their Bible into pieces and give it to a pastor so he can go teach them. And then after a while, they will, they will turn around and they'll change pieces of Bible so that you can have this and I'll have that and I'll teach my people this. So here's my, here's my point. How can I say to you that the way to diligently seek God is through his word when so much of the world for centuries has not had the word of God. How can I say that to you? And I don't know how I can say that to you. I really don't. Uh, those believers who haven't had the word of God, I, the spirit of God must have just, you know, I, you know, orally passing the word of God. I guess it was the spirit of God. But I tell you what, we have the word of God. We have the word of God. So I can't tell you 
you know, to the Chinese believers who have no word of God or to our brothers and sisters trapped in the Muslim world who have, even those men, there's some stories on the insanity of God. Let me tell you one, where these four men get visions, get visions from God about Jesus, right? And, and they just, and one of them, for instance, every one of them finds a Bible, and they're miraculous stories of how these men found Bibles. This one guy in a dream, I know I'm off tangent, this isn't even in my notes, but there's this one man who has a dream that he's got to find a blue book, a blue book. And so everywhere he goes, he's looking for a blue book. He walks into, I mean, he's in the Muslim world, and he walks into a Muslim bookshop. And there on the shelf are all these books, and there's this, John, am I getting it right? There's a blue book that stands out, and he goes over, and I, I thought that, Sue. It's a Gideon Bible, as Sue said. And in this, in, this, um, in this Muslim world, this brother finds a blue book, and it's a Bible in his language. So I, I can't speak about them. Let me just go back to talking to us. As Jesus walks among us, he's looking to see do you love him with all your heart. And here's what that means. It means you diligently seek to know him. How do you know him? You know him through the word of God. You know him, you know him by faith. And you, how do you get faith? How do you, know, how do you have that faith? You, you have it through the word of God. So let me ask you, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to make us feel bad, but I, I do. Man, do you, do you read your Bible? Do you read your Bible? Do you study your Bible? Uh, faith. I said, I said I wanted to give you two things on each one. And... Uh, Oh my goodness, um, I've talked too much. All right, faith, and, and here's the second thing on loving God with all your heart, it's faithfulness. Here's the other thing I'd say to you, it's faithfulness. Faith, and then, and then, it's, and then the second thing is Jesus walks among us, he's gonna look for faithfulness, and he's gonna look for us to obey him. Some of you are fairly new, you don't know my story. My story was as a 19-year-old in college being confronted with the words of Jesus where he says, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? That was hugely impactful in my life. Why do you call me Lord, Jimmy, and not do what I say? Faithfulness is obedience to God. Jesus said, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me, right? If you love me, you'll obey me. Faithfulness is us obeying God. You say, obey him at what? Obey him at everything. Obey him at everything. You and I should be trying to please the Lord by obeying him in every point that he wants us to obey him. It's like an arithmetic problem. I may get it wrong and have to go back, but when I'm doing arithmetic, I am trying to get every part of arithmetic right so at the end, my, my answer is right, okay? I don't purposefully say, I'm gonna leave that part out in the middle somehow. No, I'm trying to do every, I may get it wrong, but I'm still trying to do every part right. You know, none of us are gonna live perfectly for the Lord. None of you will live obediently to the Lord in everything, but we should all seek to live obedient to the Lord, being faithful to the Lord. So as he walks among us, and he's looking for faith, he's looking for living stones who seek him, and living stones who obey him. The, the, the last point was on us Loving others, and um, so here's what I want to say about this. And again, I'm just trying to I'm trying to get out of the cloud view and down here where it's practical. What what would 
Why would Jesus, as he walks among us and he's looking at the living stones, what would he want to see? What, what does he hope to see as he walks among us? I think that one of the things he hopes to see is provision. That he hopes to see us providing for one another, caring for one another. In 1 John, and I've got it in my notes and I can't quote it exactly, but basically John, the, the author who's writing the Gospel of John, he makes this statement. He says, oh, let me read it. It's such a good verse. Let me read it. Sorry, if I had one of those steel trap memories, which we all know, I have just the opposite. Um, He says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whatever, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in needs, closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. So as as Jesus walks among us, he doesn't want to see hoarders doesn't want us to see, he doesn't want to see hoarders of blessings. He, he wants us to see, he wants hopefully to see conduits of, of the blessings that we have. And I'm not talking about just financial, I'm talking about in every way that we have them. He wants to see conduits of blessing, not, not hoarders and keepers of blessing. Do you remember what a Chinese brother said they, that when, they, when they told Nick about, Nick, you, you know, and he's telling them, oh, you're really the blessed ones. And, and, they, and they, all those things that we listened to a minute ago, Those are not for us to keep for ourselves. We're to be, and I don't know exactly how to live all this out, but but we are to be conduits of provision for the family of God, for one another. And and then the last thing I said is Jesus would look for grace, for mercy, for forgiveness. And, And I'm not trying to say three different things there. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to find adjectives to just say one thing, and that is that Jesus, as he walks among us in his temple today, what he hopes to see is living stones whose hearts are just filled with kindness and grace and goodness and acceptance of people. You know, I, I quoted, I quoted uh, Luke earlier, and, and again, I, I, Luke, I don't know if you know if you're in here, I saw your dad, but you know what, Luke? I mean, that, that was what I think Jesus wants us to be. He wants us to be people who really care about others and, and we're sensitive to them and we don't judge them, but we love them. This is God's job to judge people, not ours. Now, please do not misunderstand me. We speak truth. We speak it in love. We don't compromise. We say what, what the scripture says. Listen, you know, transgenderism is wrong. I'm not saying people don't suffer from some kind of dysphoria, but you're not a woman if you were born a male. I mean, that's, that's the truth. Homosexuality is wrong. Adultery is wrong. Premarital sex is wrong. Living together before you get married is wrong. And we love people, but we still speak the truth. So I'm not saying that we, that we somehow make our love wishy-washy, but, but, but it's not my job to judge anybody, to be angry with them, to somehow exact God's punishment on them. That, I mean, that's all between them and God. And by the way, I'm just like them, aren't you? I mean, your little thing may be different. Your little, your little gig of sin may be different than theirs. Jesus would walk among us and he'd want us to see people who are sensitive to others, always willing to confess their sins, always willing to, to, listen, prefer to be wronged for reconciliation's sake than to be right and be irreconciled. Did you hear what I just said? Do you believe that? Jesus would prefer you to be wronged and reconciled than right and irreconciled? 
I say that because in the letter to the church at Corinth, he said, some of you are taking your fellow brothers and sisters to court. Why not let yourself be wronged instead of doing that? I don't, I don't say this all the time, but I'm trying to tell you that somehow in the mind and heart of God, us loving people and, and, and preferring ourselves to be wronged so that, that we might be reconciled is what God desires of, of us. If Jesus walked through the temple today, if he, and, and isn't he? If he walked among us today, if he came in the back door physically and he walked among us, that's what he'd be looking for. He'd look for living stones that love him more than anything and love each other. And then he'd look for what that looks like. When Jesus walked through the temple that day in Palestine, I I know he didn't want to find what he found. In fact, I'd like to suggest to you, see if you agree with me, that probably what he hoped to find in that temple was what I just described he hopes to find in this temple. Wouldn't you agree? And what he hoped to find that day in that temple is what he would hope to find in this temple today. We are the temple of God today. You are a living stone in that temple. And if I could, I'd even say that you are a microcosm of God's true temple, his church. Now listen to what I'm about to say. So often in our culture, which is so individualized, you know, we, we try to make you to be the temple individually. And I'm telling you, most of the pl- time in the word of God, the you is plural. We are the temple of God. Together we are God's temple. But, but there is one place where God kind of just talks about you being a microcosm of the temple. So here's what I'd ask you. If Jesus walked in your heart this morning, what would he find? Seriously. If he walked into your heart, what would he find? Would he find this living stone that loves God so much that he's filled with faith and seeking after God, walking in faithfulness to God? Or or would he find someone whose life is just filled with compromise because he knows God is gracious? Would he find that? If he walked in your heart, would he find this person who is intent on sharing provision and generosity with others? Or, or would, would he find some selfish hoarder who keeps all of his blessings to himself or as many of them as he can? What, which would he find? Would he find a person filled with grace and gentleness, and kindness and forgiveness? Let's bow our heads. Most of the time, I don't know what to do at this point because this is the point of, of, of response to the word of God. Jesus, Jesus often spoke and, and he would say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And here's what he meant. If you've got ears to hear and you need to respond to this, then respond. That's what he meant when he'd say, if you have ears to hear, let him hear. If you have ears to hear this morning and the spirit of God has touched your heart, that if he walked into the temple, into our temple, his temple, our, our family, if he walked in here, what would he find us to be in the plural? Would he find us to be a temple that loves God with all of our heart, that he's our greatest priority, our greatest joy, our greatest love? Would he, would he find us faithful? You know, I, you know, I, I, skipped, my, I skipped my application there. My, 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 my drilling down would have been worship daily and weekly worship for for us in faithfulness. 
What would he find among us? Would, would he find men and women who desperately care for others, who are willing to be wronged and give up so that others might have and might somehow flourish? Would, would he find this other-centric life about our church family? Or would he, would he find us to be too self-centered and self-focused? And what about if he walked into your heart personally? What would, what would he find I guess it all begins there, so all of us have to answer that question. What would he find in your heart? Are you, are you diligently seeking Jesus, getting to know him through his word? Man, we have no excuse. Oh my goodness, no excuse. Holy Spirit, I ask you to fall on us in this quiet moment. Holy Spirit, do what Jesus did that day in the brick and mortar temple. You do in the, in the temple of our hearts, Lord, the temple that is us living stones. Lord, do, Spirit of God, uh, in our hearts. Lord, as you walk through, walk through us today, walk through this family right now, Lord, and put your finger on what you see. Everybody look up at me one more minute. On that day that Jesus cleansed the brick and mortar temple where the Spirit of God would live in the holy or would dwell in the holy of holies, when he cleansed the temple that day, just like today, people had an opportunity to respond to what God was doing. They could repent and say, Jesus is right, or they could just go on their merry way and come back to the temple, and three years later, he could do it again. So you have the same choice today. Respond to the Spirit of God or just keep trucking. I hope all of us will respond to the Spirit of God. Now let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. And uh, Lord, this has been uncomfortable for me because it's just um, how much more comfortable just teaching exactly what you say in the scriptures. I, I do pray that you'll use this. I pray that I have spoken for you. Lord, I know it's true. I know it's true, Lord, that you desire for us to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. I know, Lord, beyond a shadow of a doubt that you desire for us to diligently seek you. And I know that we seek you through, through your word. So, Lord, help us to do that, every one of us. Lord, help us to walk in faithfulness. Help us to not to put to death sin in our lives and not live sinfully, but live holy before you. That's what you desired to find in your temple that day. And I know you desire to find that here. Lord, help us to love people. Help us to love one another. Lord, help us to be quick to forgive, quick to... Quick to uh, show kindness and, Lord, to submit to one another. Lord, may we love people and not just us. Lord, may, the, may those outside of us see this great love we have for one another and be drawn to be a part of us. We pray all this that Christ might be glorified in us. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing here locally in Surrey. Be blessed. Mm-hmm.